Hello, everyone, and welcome to Close Readings. I'm your host, Kamran Javadizadeh, and I'm very happy today to have Langdon Hammer on the podcast to talk about his um, colleague and friend, Louise Glick, who, um, as you must know by now, uh, recently and shockingly passed away. Um, Lanny is the um, the first repeat guest I've had on the podcast. Um, he was on a very early episode to talk about the poet James Merrill. Um, and I've asked Lanny back on to participate in what I think will be a little cluster of episodes that I'm hoping to um, host here on the podcast, where we add to the uh, beautiful set of memories that have been coming out in various publications where friends and um, colleagues and former students of Louise have been sharing um, their memories of what it was like to know her and to read her and to work alongside her over the years. I thought that one thing that this podcast might add to that mix is to get a chance to sit one by one with a series of poems and to um, and to give those a kind of sustained attention that isn't often possible in other kinds of written forms. Um, and so and so I've invited Lanny back on for that express purpose. So the poem Lanny has chosen to talk about today is a poem of hers called A Foreshortened Journey. Uh, the poem is a prose poem. You can find a link to it um, as ever in the episode notes for those who'd like to look along as we um, as we discuss the poem. Uh, let me tell you briefly um, about our guest in case you um, missed that early episode or need a quick reminder. Uh, Lanny Hammer is the Neil Gray Jr. Professor of English at Yale University, where for... Um, the last uh, many years, he uh, was a colleague of Louise Glick. Um, Lanny is the author of James Merrill, Life and Art, uh, a kind of magisterial biography of a great poet, um, and the editor with Stephen Yenser of A Whole World Letters from James Merrill. Um, Lanny's also been the editor of two Library of America editions, one of Mae Swenson and one of Hart Crane. Uh, Lanny's first book, um, um, uh, academic monograph uh, is called Hart Crane and Alan Tate Janus Faced Modernism. Um, and, and that came out from Princeton University Press. It's a great book and um, was followed by a book that Lanny edited called Oh, My Land, My Friends, which was a selection, a very healthy selection, almost all of the letters I think that um, one could find at the time, anyway, of um, Hart Crane's letters. Um, Lanny's also the poetry editor at American Scholar. And I've been very happy to see in recent years um, a new kind of writing beginning to emerge from, um, from Lanny, um, experiments in personal essays that are often also essays of literary criticism too. Um, you can find essays like that in Yale Review and Paris Review, um, two places where Lanny has published um, reminiscences of Louise. Uh, but also places like Raritan and the Los Angeles Review of Books. Um, Lanny regularly has reviewed poetry for um, the New York Times, um, the New York Review of Books. Um, and he's at work, hard at work, on a biography, a critical biography of Elizabeth Bishop, 
for FSG. Lanny's also um, my teacher, as as probably most listeners to this podcast know, was my um, my mentor in graduate school and in my undergrad years as well. Um, is is um, the the person to whom I, I owe more than anything in terms of my uh, my own career as a critic and writer and thinker about poetry. And I was so moved in particular to read um, Lanny's uh, piece about Louise, which came out very recently in the Yale Review. And in that piece, one of the things that Lanny does is to recall a kind of um, momentous occasion, which was, I think, his first um, encounter in person with Louise Glick. Um, I believe it was 2002. And all of the um, former winners of the Bollingen Prize, um, a, a prize that um, it was administered by Yale University and it's kind of major prize um, for American poetry, all of the living winners of that prize um, were invited to New Haven and read um, on the New Haven Green. Uh, Louise read I think last at that event, um, and uh, or maybe uh, towards the end. Uh, I'm not sure. And um, Lanny describes the expectations that an audience member might have had in um, attending such an event that there would be a kind of happy celebration of um, poetic fame. Um, there were a lot of famous poets in the room, after all. Um, that we might be there to um, to um, sort of think about and to admire um, the wit and um, and fluency of of poetry's public reach. Um, Lanny said that in listening to Louise, he heard a different kind of message, a sort of refusal of those easy easier forms of consolation, and instead, what Louise's uh, way of reading seemed to communicate was this, quote, no, it is about poetry, and poetry is about now, and your life, and about the death all around you, and ahead of us all, end quote. Um, it's been very, um, it's very moved to, to, to read um, those lines in particular, and it's been impossible for me since then, and having listened, and I've been listening to recordings of Louise Reed, um, uh, on, on public occasions, it's been impossible not to hear that kind of message as a sort of undersound um, to all of her poems. Um, and it's a profound message, I think. So uh, with that, I just want to uh, welcome you, Lanny, to the podcast today and, and to ask you how you're doing. Thank you, Kamal. Uh, I'm glad to be able to talk about Louise's poetry with you. Um. Well, I'm glad to have you here. It's it's a sad occasion. Um, it's the the loss um, of a colleague and friend of yours, um, and I know you've shared some early memories about um, about your friendship with her in these pieces that I've um, gestured towards in my introduction of you. I'll make those pieces available to our listeners if they haven't read them already, but I wonder if you might be willing to share for us here and now just some sense of what it was like to get to know Louise Glick, um, what she was like as a friend and colleague, um, what 
your sorts of first impressions with her were like, what it was like to talk with her? Well, as, as you say, um, my first impression was listening to her read October, the poem, mm -hmm. uh, in September 2002, not very far from 9-11, and uh, to feel uh, blown away by what I was hearing. Um, and I think I was hardly the only person to feel that way. Uh, incidentally, she read third, I think. Uh, because she read in alphabetical order. <laughs> uh, right. <laughs> All the poets did. Ashbury and Creeley had already read. Uh, I thought it might and, have been an order of seniority. I guess that was my yeah, silly thought. Right, you know. right, right, right. Well, it was, it, you know, it was an occasion where, yeah. um, uh, let's see, I think nine eminent poets were standing up to read. All of them were white, uh, and all of them were men. Uh, yeah. save one. Uh, and most of them, of course, were um, uh, older. Uh, and they were all older than Louise, even Mark Strand, who was, was fairly close to, to Louise in age. Um, anyway, uh, that that occasion was, was really, you know, as I said, blew me away. Um, and, and it was a profound moment. Um, I got to know Louise uh, in, uh, you know, as a colleague who was uh, on campus every fall, two days a week, uh, Monday and Tuesday, uh, teaching at first two classes, uh, meeting with students whenever she wasn't teaching, basically. And whenever she wasn't teaching uh, or meeting with students, having a meal <laughs> with <laughs> me or some other friend uh, or friends. And um, uh, I think I got to know Louise uh, much as so many friends of hers did, uh, which is to say across a table, um, mm. ordering food, <laughs> uh, complaining about the food, um, enjoying the food, uh, depending. And... Um, and talking. Uh, Louise, uh, Louise was a one-on-one um, -on -one person. Right. She, uh, you know, she knew how to lead a seminar. She uh, wasn't unhappy with a group at a table, but she was in her element when she was one-on-one -on -one with someone whether that was uh, over lunch or uh, in uh, her faculty office uh, talking with a student with lots of other students lined up outside. Right. Uh, Louise, I was thinking about this today, uh, was someone that you could really say almost anything to. And I, I mean, by that, uh, not that she was uh, endlessly open-minded or uh, <laughs> without judgment or uh, right. or uh, irony about what one might say. Um, however, um, she was a very honest person herself and very ready to talk about uh, things that mattered uh, essentially to her. 
and uh, encourage one to do the same. And, and that promoted a kind of uh, freedom and intimacy that's rare. Yeah. Uh, it, it, one just doesn't have that many relationships like that. Um, although she, I think all of her, all of her uh, uh, good friends, uh, uh, she had relationships like that with. Um, right. And uh, what I'm describing, this one-on-oneness, is um, really resonates with her idea of poetry. Uh, and yeah. Well, it occurs to it occurs to me, Lenny. There, you know, the, of course, there uh, the, there are some there are many kinds of poetry and many kinds of poets, but there's there is at least one tradition which Louise really seems to have participated in, in which poetry is a kind of one to one kind of encounter, right? That one has the sense, perhaps in reading a poem, that one mm-hmm. is being addressed mm-hmm. personally. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. or something mm-hmm. and and so that's the that's the sense i mean if i got am i on the right track here in terms of the point you're getting at well that's that's definitely how she talked about poetry uh in you know multiple places in in prose uh, you know when she was writing about what poetry meant to her um and it's a really important idea for her but it's also a misleading one say more <laughs> how so <laughs> Well, because it makes it sound so um, makes makes the makes poetry seem like such a private matter. Uh-huh. Uh, whereas, uh, you know, I think for Louise that that one to one relationship that involves poetic a poetic voice and a reader. Um, was really a kind of, um, at the same time that it's intimate and private, it's, it's a kind of um, foundational unit for some kind of social life. Mm. Uh, and if you look at Louise's poetry, really across the span of it, um, it is indeed uh, poetry um, about families, about uh, right. personal relationships. Uh, these all feature in the poetry early and late. Um, but she's also, at the same time, or you know, precisely through this subject matter, interested in getting at uh, some larger sense of um, the human. Uh, which uh, involves collectivity uh, and right. involves um, shared experience, common experience. Uh, and, you know, if you look at the progression of her later work, um, all this is quite explicit. Uh, right. a, a book like uh, Village Life is, you know, very much about... Um, Self and community. Let's just put it that way for for a shorthand. Um, um, I think uh, "Faithful and Virtuous Night" in, in its um, multiple voices uh, reaches right. towards something similar. Uh, the last book of poems is called "Winter Recipes from the Collective." Right. 
Yeah. And sort of both halves of that title, uh, the, the idea of a recipe and, and the idea <laughs> of, of the collective point to models of poetry that um, can't, can't really be contained by or, or well described by the kind of intimate private lyric encounter that, I mean, it's not, it, it's as though the, the idea that I'm getting and listening to you um, sort of correct or nudge or describe how the the view that I was articulating earlier might feel accurate but misleading is that the the kind of personal or private encounter was a a kind of door through which her poetry passed mm-hmm. again and again to open up into these um, larger kinds of experience um, that aren't necessarily limited by the by the private. I have um I, oh go ahead yeah you have a thought. I was just going to say, I think that's right. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> I, a, door, a door is nice too. I, yeah, I like yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's a, it's an, it's an image of hers. That, um, exactly right. Uh, uh, from the wild iris. Yep. Yeah. Um, At the end I'm, of my suffering, there was a door. There was a door. That's right. I saw her. Um, uh, I saw it's on it's on YouTube. Uh, uh, an interview or conversation she was having on stage in which she said that she had that line. At the end of my suffering, there was a door before she had anything else that went in the poem and that she mm. thought for a time, maybe that was, it was a one line poem. She it's didn't know what to do with it really. That um, it's become, it's become perhaps her most um, famous line or one of them. Um, I, I have one. Lines too. Yeah. It's, it's, a, yeah. it's of course, it's, a, I mean, yeah. uh, gosh, uh, who was just saying this um, recently? This isn't my point. Um, uh, the, the syntax of it is so interesting as well as the line break uh, yeah. at the, what if it was, there was a door at the end of my suffering. Oh, right. Nah, yeah. Not so good. No, not good. <laughs> not good. <laughs> if that was one line or if that was even an enjammed line, there right. was a door enjambment at right. the end of my suffering. Uh, no. no, it's very important that it's constructed the way it is. Uh, yeah. It's sort of thrilling. Um, yeah, it's it's almost a. I mean, it's it's not a. <laughs> I, this 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 sounds like I'm reaching now, but it's it's not a Miltonic sentiment, but it is a kind of Miltonic sort of syntax to put the, mm-hmm. to or kind of Latinate syntax to put that crucial word monosyllabic in this case at the end of yeah. the line. Right. Um, I, I have a question for you. Um, one more question about what it was like to be perhaps a colleague, but a, f- a friend in the circumstances that you've described too. That's also just a more general question about the poetry world, such as it is. Um, you know, you're a scholar of poetry, a uh, poetry critic, and you work um, in an English department with a long history of poetry studies and um, and critics of, you know, sort of practicing critics of poetry passing through as well. It's also a department that for many years has had a a rich tradition of working poets teaching um, various kinds of courses in creative writing, um, the kind of discipline that we come to have come to understand is called creative writing um, since. And I, you know, I guess I just wonder um, what it felt like to have the sort of within the the context of an English department for, you know, the a poetry scholar who works 
on modern and contemporary poetry to form a relationship with a poet who's at the same time sort of producing the poems that in some cases you might be assigning in class and um, writing about in some way. I mean, was that, and and so I'm interested in your perspective on that. I'm also interested in what your memory is of Louise's attitude about that. I mean, I've, Mm -hmm. I've encountered poets who have all, all kinds of attitudes across Mm -hmm. the sort of spectrum of of Mm -hmm. the work that you and I do, Lanny, you Mm -hmm. know, of, of, Mm -hmm. of the work that scholars do. So it Mm -hmm. ranges from sort of deep suspicion and hostility to admiration and deference and um, sort of everything in between. And I guess I just wonder what, you know, what that was like, what that aspect of the relationship was like for you Mm. with Louise. Uh, I wish now that I had taught Louise more than I did. Uh, and in fact, I'm just thinking this summer, no, I, I should really just teach a, a Louise class uh, and, and you know, get her get her in on this and, and make that happen. Uh, and of course, I was too late. Um, it's an example of ways in which I think I, I took uh, this extraordinary person a little too much for granted. Uh, how did, well, let's see, there are lots of parts to that question. Um, one part that uh, I'll pick up is uh, the question of, in a way, what, what was Louise's relation to the English department, uh, the rest of the English department right. besides creative writing? And, and for that matter, what was her relationship to criticism and to scholarship? Uh, these other ways of relating to encountering, uh, responding to poetry. Um, I think Louise was always interested in critics and in criticism. Um, She wanted to read stuff I wrote uh, that, you know, had no immediate bearing on her work or, um, or, or others. I know she liked to, uh, read uh, the biographical writing that I did uh, right. about James Merrill. Uh, I think one of her favorite books in the past few years was Karen Rothman's biography of John Ashbery, which uh-huh. I think completely uh, changed her view of Ashbery. So uh, interesting. Be- uh, because I mean, Karen's you know incredible work had... Uh, you know, excavated the kind of connection between Ashbury's poetry and uh, his uh, childhood and his, yeah. his uh, life circumstances. And this was revelatory to, for Louise, and, and um, she loved that. Um, I think um, Louise... That book, for people who don't know it, is called The Songs We Know Best. Um, and it's a, it's a biography of Ashbury's early years, really, uh, the first sort of part of his life. Um, and exactly. Annie's too modest to tell you here is that Karen, like like me, uh, were both students of Lanny's as well. And I think maybe there's a uh, there's a sort of way of thinking about the relationship between biography and poetry that's important to you and that's resonated with her. Yeah, maybe I I, I think, but I think that she Louise was um, uh, she was. She admired intellectual projects. 
uh, and and took uh, and, and considered criticism and other kinds of scholarly work as you know um, part of a creative biography, uh, and and uh, she was in that sense. I think very much open to um, uh, other stuff going on in the English department. Uh, although I think she did tend to uh, read through the person, as it were, uh, huh. and and read. Uh, you know, you know, she she would care about what you wrote because you wrote it. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> that that was a. Uh, 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 a dimension so of uh, you know what that that she would understand uh, what a critic um, or maybe a psychoanalyst uh, uh-huh. or um, a historian was doing um, via uh, that person's um, creative projects. Um, I uh-huh. uh, I taught Louise's work a bit uh, in my classes. Um, she read a lot on campus, um, which was terrific. Um, I was able to publish in the American Scholar um, with uh, short introductions, poems from uh, A Village Life uh, and then Faithful and Virtuous Night and then right. later Winter Recipes. Um, so there were these occasions where I was um, seeing Louise's work in progress and trying to uh, make sense of it for um, introduce it to um, a wider audience in that um, modest context of a, you know, short profile uh, in, in that magazine, the American scholar. Um, for me, uh, fascinatingly, that gave me some look into her um, creative process and how she constructed a, a book uh, and and the uh, uh, way her her work started to take shape. And and I think anyone who knows her work knows this, but perhaps for those who um, are not already familiar with it, it should be stressed that each of her books is itself a kind of poetic work uh, that is integral and coherent. Uh, it's not just a collection of the poems she's written over the right. last three or four or five years. Right. Um, and uh, each of those books uh, had a kind of... Um, uh, a narrative of their making. Let's call it that. Um, right. And, Do you, and mean, you mean a sort of um, implicit narrative that one can begin to infer from a reading of the book, but also the kind of thing that she would talk about in conversation or interviews or whatever about the sort of story of how that book came to be? Uh, well, both, uh, both, yeah. both those things. I mean, I, I think that, um, uh, Yes, uh, as one of these books took shape, the um, uh, the way in which that happened uh, was itself a kind of story that ultimately can be read out of the book, so to speak. Right. Uh, and which she was also kind of ready to talk about because she, Louise was very comfortable uh, taking questions. 
uh, in public. Uh-huh. Uh, she liked uh-huh. that. Um, her readings yeah. almost always uh, had, you know, substantial Q and A's. She she took that very seriously, and she was more comfortable being asked questions than, say. Uh, being asked to write a lecture or or you know, right. somehow produce an account um, without that kind of uh, without without the presence of an interlocutor, so to speak. Well, it's interesting to think about this sort of dialogic dimension because you've talked about and written about how her poetry wants to sort of address readers. She wants to talk to you. You know, but it, but I I love this idea that she wanted to be asked questions that she or that she, you could see that she took a kind of pleasure or had a um, a sort of willingness to to be um, to be asked um, uh, for her thoughts and um, and I think you've also written about and have mentioned briefly in passing here her interest in sort of the psychoanalytic model of exchange too and I can see ways in which that might be relevant to to what you've just been saying too. Um, Lanny, let's let's listen to a recording. We we um, happen to have a recording of Louise Glick reading a foreshortened journey, the poem that you've um, you've put in front of us today. Um, uh, do you, do you uh, well? Why don't why don't we say this? Uh, we'll play the recording, and then maybe I can invite you um, to talk a little bit about what it was that led you to choose this poem of the many options that lay before you. Okay, here's Louise Glick. A foreshortened journey. I found the stairs somewhat more difficult than I had expected, and so I sat down, so to speak, in the middle of the journey. Because there was a large window opposite the railing, I was able to entertain myself with the little dramas and comedies of the street outside, though no one I knew passed by, no one certainly who could have assisted me, nor were the stairs themselves in use as far as I could see. You must get up, my lad, I told myself. Since this seemed suddenly impossible, I did the next best thing. I prepared to sleep, my head and arms on the stair above, my body crouched below. Sometime after this, a little girl appeared at the top of the staircase, holding the hand of an elderly woman. Grandmother, cried the little girl, there is a dead man on the staircase. We must let him sleep, said the grandmother. We must walk quietly by. He is at that point in life at which neither returning to the beginning nor advancing to the end seems bearable. Therefore, he has decided to stop here in the midst of things, though this makes him an obstacle to others such as ourselves. But we must not give up hope. In my own life, she continued, there was such a time, though that was long ago. And here she let her granddaughter walk in front of her so they could pass me without disturbing me. I would have liked to hear the whole of her story, since she seemed, as she passed by, a vigorous woman, ready to take pleasure in life and at the same time forthright without illusions. 
but soon their voices faded into whispers or they were far away. Will we see him when we return, the child murmured. He will be long gone by then, said her grandmother. He will have finished climbing up or down, as the case may be. Then I will say goodbye now, said the little girl. And she knelt below me, chanting a prayer I recognized as the Hebrew prayer for the dead. Sir, she whispered, my grandmother tells me you are not dead, but I thought perhaps this would soothe you in your terrors, and I will not be here to sing it at the right time. When you hear this again, she said, perhaps the words will be less intimidating if you remember how you first heard them in the voice of a little girl. So that's that's Louise Gluck reading uh, for Shortened Journey. Um, Lenny, um, t- tell us tell us first, um, you know, what it was that led you to this poem, and and maybe also share with us what it is you hear anew in listening to the recording. Mm. Uh, well, I chose it because Louise chose it. Uh, that is to say, she she any time she read in my hearing in the past what six years or so uh she read this poem among others um Mm -hmm. she included it uh in the selection of her poetry that's up on the nobel prize website uh clearly she was she wanted to she wanted to share this poem with us um and i've always found it completely disarming and moving uh, Mm -hmm. and mysterious. Uh, And let me say right away, I I don't have a reading of this. I've never, I've never taught it. Uh, I've never written about it. Um, uh, Maybe, maybe we can make some sense of it together. Um, There is, well, I've got lots of different things to say. Yeah. Uh, Go ahead. Say some of them, and then I have, and then I, of course I have questions that might lead us. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, I, you know, it also occurs to me that, that some of my ways into it lead out of it. Uh, and... <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> what do you mean well, by that? Well, first of all, uh, this is a, a uh, poem that is included in "Faithful and Virtuous Night." Yeah. Um, I mentioned earlier that. Um, Louise's books create holes um, and uh, that they uh, in, that they evolve in, in certain ways. Um, mm-hmm. And that is to say they're both their writing process and then ultimately um, the text that she's created. Um, in the case of Faithful and Virtuous Night, so far as I know, she uh, created initially a series of uh, dramatic monologues for, we are to infer, uh, an older British painter who has suffered uh, 
the loss of his parents when he was a young child. And uh, these are poems that she wrote, free verse poems, these dramatic monologues, um, after her book, A Village Life. Now, in whenever Louise began the work on a new book, she was determined to do something different from what she had done before. Right. Uh, and A Village Life is full of these kind of long uh, lines uh, that are uh, often very colloquial um, that are um, that represent stories from a kind of Mediterranean village of the mind. Mm. Well, when she started writing this book with this painter as a speaker, she really was doing something different. I, I found it completely haunting, uh, the, these uh, dramatic monologues that she had produced. Uh, you know, here was Louise at whatever age, um, writing these poems from the point of view of, it seemed, a man who um, had had the life experience that her poems described. Uh, it was a bit like a psychoanalytic case study huh. uh, in yeah. narrative content. Uh, but it was, uh, and it was a voice that that was was highly formal, um, immensely careful and subtle, uh, and sounded quite different from most of the voices in a village life. Anyway, I, I say all that to say I was really excited about what she was doing, <laughs> uh -huh. and then she started doing different things uh, because. Louise, I think, did not want her books to have a kind of singular voice or, 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 or speaker. Uh, she liked uh, a kind of limited polyphony. Uh, huh. She liked to play different voices and, and indeed different kinds of poems, different registers of diction right. off of each other. Uh, and one way in which she developed this book was to, and it disappointed me at first because I wanted her to, <laughs> I, wanted, I wanted to see, have a whole book about this person that I found fascinating. That is right. this painter character, but no, that's not what she was doing. The book would be uh, called the painter or something. Yeah. Right. Yeah, right It'd yeah, be a different yeah. book. Uh, uh, anyway, um, the poems that she, she included other poems, including poems movingly, really impropria persona, you know, really Louise speaking, right. such as the poem at the very end of the book, uh, the penultimate poem, which is called um, A Summer Garden. Uh, and it's, it's an elegy for her mother who, who, who died at uh, 101, a remarkable age, in, I believe, 2011. Um, and that's, you know, she names her mother, Beatrice, right. in that, that, that um poem uh mm. so there, there were poems in the book um that were you know very much not this um not this um older painter speaking uh but there she also interjected a series of prose poems 
Now, uh, just before we spoke, I thought, oh my God, I better, I better go check on this. Uh, <laughs> had Louise ever written a prose poem before? Um, a quick perusal of the, uh, you know, what is it, uh, six hundred something pages yeah. of of uh, uh, her her uh, poems, nineteen sixty two to twenty twelve, uh, suggests that no, she had never had written a prose poem before, or had um, never seen fit to include one in a, in a right. published volume. In other words, yeah, right. Yeah. Um, but here there are these different prose poems, um, yeah, and. Uh, there are a number of different, um, I think, impulses and sources for these prose poems, which uh, I think are quite extraordinary. Um, uh, the most important and obvious one, uh, most important and obvious source being Kafka. Uh, she read uh, she read Kafka's paradoxes and, and parables. Um, I probably in the Muir translation and uh, was very excited by them. I mean, this and, sounds and like it, Kafka. I mean, this one. It's, it's, yeah. it almost sounds, it, it's, yeah. I mean, there's a sense of almost Kafka tribute uh, in this poem in particular, I think. Um, but, but you, you hear it too in, in some of the other uh, prose poems in this this volume, um, but let me let me digress a little bit further. Uh, I told you that my ways into this are <laughs> involved going out of the poem. That's that's um, that's fine. Yeah, please. Um, I, Louise was a great reader of prose. Um, what kind of prose did she like? She liked to read prose fiction, um, and I mean, I think she read lots of different kinds of prose she read garden catalogs she read uh, <laughs> she she read food magazines but um she um uh she liked to read prose fiction and i think uh that fed her own writing in a very direct way um i think uh Kutsia, uh she was very interested in before she started writing a village life uh she liked to read iris murdoch um, uh, Kafka is obviously very important here. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, lots of other, uh, writers too. I don't mean to limit it. Um, uh, and there was something about those prose voices. Yeah. Some, not all being first person voices that, uh, that I think was very, um, generative for her. Uh, and, and she, she wanted some of that quality of that voice and sensibility uh in her own writing and and, and uh in kafka's parables are, are 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 very much uh uh at play here uh in in these uh, prose poems and this one in particular yeah um yeah uh there's um that that presence is palpable um, to me, it does seem like there's, um, I, I don't, I, I mean, I want to be careful here not to pretend to be the kind of authority that I'm not, I'm not sure that I know her work well enough to, to say this exactly, but it feels to me as though there's this emerging interest in the idea of character as a, a almost in the way that a, a fiction writer imagines 
who a character might be that is um, something I don't find as often in poetry. Um, and so mm-hmm. that might be another way um, prose is, is coming in. Um, having said all of that, in the first sentence of, of this poem, <laughs> I found the stairs somewhat more difficult than I had expected. And so I sat down, so to speak, in the middle of the journey. The, the last phrase in that sentence um, must, I think, be an allusion um, to um, a very famous poem, um, mm. though a narrative one. Um, so mm-hmm. there's that. But I'm thinking, of course, of Dante and of mm-hmm. the first lines of Inferno, which are mm-hmm. translated variously, but always something like in the middle of life's journey or at yeah. the midpoint of my life, um, right. something like that. Right. Um, so so I'm curious. And then I've you know, my ears perked up a little bit. Actually, I have to say when you um, reminded me that her mother's name is Beatrice too. That's interesting. <laughs> uh, but right. let's, let's set that to one side, maybe unless yep. you want to do something with it. Um, I wonder um, at the level of tone um, or at the level of sort of, I don't know, setting, setting or establishing the kind of voice of the poem or something. Mm. What do you make of Dante's presence in the first line of the poem it's it's qualified with this so to speak which feels important to me too so what you know what's dante doing here and and what's so to speak doing to dante's <laughs> presence here i mean is it well, an irony right. or what yeah yeah i mean the, the real louise touch there is so to speak mm-hmm. uh you know she she loves to include these phrases again much more common from prose uh than than uh verse so to speak as it were uh other um uh phrases that acknowledge and gesture towards the a kind of self-consciousness about right language choice uh about um just just to remind us that um that there, there's a kind of archness, self-consciousness uh, about right. everything being put forward here. It's not, uh, nothing is unmediated. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it's, uh, I, I think in this particular case, that bit of self-consciousness is also a bit of modesty as she makes the big gesture uh that is as she invokes a trope as um uh time-worn uh unmistakable and resonant as the one she's about to deliver (laughs) it's almost it's almost a way of sort of uh apologizing for it preemptively or something or saying you and i both know what i'm doing here Um, yeah what it's funny to me is that um, at that at, at that moment, I mean, it, it would have been weird had she used quotation marks there. I, I it, that would have been a conspicuous thing to do. But um, elsewhere in the poem, there is dialogue, and and right. nowhere does she use quotation, quotation marks. marks. So there is something. I think there is something interesting about the way she's kind of finding other ways to flag 
yeah, I don't know what in a kind of jargony way I might say it's like her citational practice, but we could yeah. just say the sort of presence of other people's words voices, in the words yeah. of her voices. Right. Good. That's right. Um, and the fact that the quotation marks aren't there ever, it seems, um, makes the kind of passage in and out of other mm. voices and the primary voice of the poem somewhat more um, fluid, uh, perhaps, than it would be otherwise. Mm-hmm. Um, That's right. And, and, yeah. and, you know, importantly, it's a dramatic monologue. Right. Uh, this is a first person poem. You know, I found the stairs. Though am I right, Lanny, that, that, yeah. that it does it wouldn't make sense to take this as a dramatic monologue in the voice of the painter character who who is the speaker of other poems in the book, or might it be? Uh, I don't know. Yeah. Well, you know what's I, I find the framing of the poem kind of fascinating and, and strange insofar as um, we have a speaker who is describing a moment of breakdown, uh, a kind of um, uh, despair, Mm -hmm. a kind of refusal to go on or go back on the stair. And um, his, uh, his perspective is um, recedes as he becomes in a way a kind of narrator of what mm. his breakdown allows him to observe, which is huh, the, right. um, well, first of all, these little dramas and comedies of the street yeah, are our everyday life, but which ultimately are of no assistance to him. Uh, but then, you know, crucially, uh, he observes as if he were uh, at once fully observant, but uh, invisibly so. He observes the grandmother and the daughter and their exchange right. about him. <laughs> right. And right. then by the end of the poem, uh, we have only their language. And we don't have anything more from him and we don't know anything about him. You know, right. uh, the, o- the only thing we are to infer, I think, is that when they return, the grandmother and the daughter, he will be, as Louise puts it, long gone by right. then. Right. And uh, he will have finished climbing up or down, as the case may be. Right. And, and and then and then he becomes almost like a third person narrator. Well or or he's almost already kind of morphed into that uh role. Uh then I will say goodbye now, said the little girl. Right. And if you just knelt- had that, in other words, you wouldn't know that there was an eye. It, it might it might as exactly. well be a, a sort of abstracted narrator. Right. And that's produced and, in a way by virtue of the fact that he's like sort of totally immobile, can't speak, has broken down, as you put it. It sort of reduces him to the status of narrator in a way. And and right. Yeah. And 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 kind of comically, right, he's just a body uh right. crouched. Prepared to sleep, my head and arms on the stair above, my body crouched below. Crouched was such a right. resonant 
term. Uh, you, you crouch, I suppose, well, if you fear a blow or if you, yeah. if you want to hide, uh, I suppose if you were a cat before you pounced. Before you leap. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah. Uh, although it doesn't, doesn't seem, seem like this... that's going to happen. <laughs> no, it doesn't, does it? Um, uh, ju- just, just before that word in that moment, there's this line that makes, I mean, it's sort of one, one thing that I'm noting, and this goes all the way back, I guess, to the fact of the performance of the public reading is that to, to read this poem on the page is, is maybe to miss something that's audible more audible when you hear it, which is that she gets laughs. There's, mm-hmm. there's a kind of nervous laughter or some mm-hmm. kind of strange laughter that I, that I, that I was hearing. And that, yeah. that, that for me, there's like the line, you must get up my lad. The, at the, my lad is a, I don't know why, but it's a funny <laughs> phrase to me. <laughs> funny maybe because it's, I don't know, help me with it. It's, um, it is. Well, it it just, does sound sort of British, for one thing, but it's it also yeah. British. It sounds jocular. Yeah. Uh, it sounds, and so it's more funny to hear it in her voice than it uh, would be to hear it true. in the voice of an actually jocular, actually British person. Right. 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 Yeah. Right. So part of the charm and humor of the poem has to do with a certain kind of ventriloquism. Yeah. That uh, that is a interesting misfit with the uh, right uh it's a kind of dissonance or yeah. right misalignment's a good word for it yeah yeah yeah, yeah. well I, I well that raises the question too of where where is louise as it were where where is the poet in in yeah. this and uh which is a question that you know you, you have to ask about almost any of her poems uh what is her relation to her speaker yeah. um uh, in that sense, Louise is really inhabits this long tradition of the dramatic monologue in English poetry, mm-hmm. uh, where there's a kind of complex play between uh, a kind of lyric first person and a mm-hmm. um, theatrical, uh, right. ventriloquized performative dramatic utterance and this is an interesting uh, take on it because there are other voices that come into the poem that might also be right sites of her identification you know? exactly yeah no, no no it's 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 quite it's wonderful isn't it i mean she's uh i i think of her as somehow all of the characters mm-hmm. uh in in the poem I, I i said earlier we don't know what happened to this man mm-hmm and indeed, we we don't, except that we know that he's written this poem. <laughs> That's right. So, so he has, you know, we don't know whether he's gone up or down or, or you know, mm-hmm. uh, exactly where he is on the stairs. But he is in a position to um, recall and represent this incident. Right. Right. I mean, I, um, as I, you know, began to read it in preparation for this conversation, I thought at first, oh, perhaps he's dying. Mm. And, um, the conversation, um, between, or the things the grandmother says, 
you know, grandmother cried the little girl. There is a dead man on the staircase. We must let him sleep, said the grandmother. That's an interesting um, sort of not fully engaged kind of exchange between the grandmother mm-hmm. and the granddaughter. She mm-hmm. doesn't, she just corrects the terms of what the granddaughter said, but silently as it were. Mm-hmm. But that I, you know, I thought, well, maybe the grandmother is being <clears throat> euphemistic or protecting the child from, from mm-hmm. a scene of death or something mm-hmm. like that. Um but then that, you know, as you say, he, the implication seems to be that he will be gone. The, it seems as though he has some consciousness that's registering the things that are being said to him insofar as he can keep them within earshot anyway. Mm-hmm. And if we take seriously the in the middle of the journey moment, well, you know, that suggests there's more journey left to go on. On the other hand, the title of the poem perhaps mm. cuts against that. Um, mm-hmm. So <laughs> indeterminate, maybe. Um, the, the, you know, Lu- Louise's voice s- sounds most like the voice of a grandmother <laughs> here. Mm-hmm. Um, but mm-hmm. but there's, um, I know there's a kind of longstanding preoccupation in her work that has to do with the kind of collapsing of um age and youth or of mm-hmm. um memory and um life in the present tense mm-hmm. um so i can see her occupying all of these positions mm-hmm. uh, um what um you know for people who aren't looking at the poem like like we've been saying it's in prose it's in three paragraphs mm-hmm. i want to say Mm-hmm. The the paragraphs um, diminish in length as it goes on, right? So the longest block is first, and then there's a kind of middling one, and then a very short one, a single sentence, a paragraph of its own at the end. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe this is an, an opportunity, Lanny, for you to reflect on, uh, in general, sort of how you take it Louise thought of things like stanzas um, mm. to which these paragraphs are sort of related in some way or, or simply to make some observation about what that kind of um, diminishment um, of mm-hmm. length as a, as a sequence mm-hmm. is sort of revealing to you about the, the sort of structure of this poem. Yeah. Well, um, It's the case that that uh, white space is really important in Louise's poetry. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is to say, the pauses between lines, the pauses between stanzas. Um, mm. It's um, it's it's part of the kind of temporal rhythm. Uh, it is, uh, I mean, the, the kind of timing of the. the yeah. of her writing uh there's also a kind of um uh inability in her writing to make um terseness and gaps resonant hmm. uh without necessarily kind of giving us space to, let's say, um, well, space to think and feel. 
Um, and uh, this is this poem is an interesting case of that insofar as um, she doesn't do much with it, but she does something still significant with it. Um, mm -hmm. Big block of prose. Uh, less, less big block yeah. than a little envoy, as it were, uh, yeah. as if it, uh, you know, as if this were some kind of um, formal ending. That last single sentence uh, uh, that had been added to the the poem. Um, the um, it, it's interesting because the first bit of narrative ends with the grandmother talking to yeah. the little daughter, uh, excuse me, to her granddaughter, the little child and saying, you know, we must not give up hope in, in my own life. Yeah. And that this seems significantly significant. She continued. There was such a time. I have been in that position. Yeah. Of breakdown. I have been a sleeping figure on the stairs. Uh, yeah. Though that was long ago, uh, and then and then they pass on, and then at that moment the the um, we we get that space that sort of end of anecdote it seems, but there's mm -hmm. going to be more, and the first person speaker says it gives the a kind of tribute to the grandmother, and I, I have to say that uh, that the grandmother is very much Louise here. Uh, yeah. I would have liked to hear the whole of her story since she seemed, as she passed by, <laughs> a vigorous woman ready to take pleasure in life and at the same time forthright, without illusions. That's uh, Louise. Is, <laughs> yes, I think so. Yeah. Uh, as, as indeed she was, all of those things. Uh, or at least, you know, a kind of ego ideal there is yeah. represented by the grandmother. <laughs> right. Uh, but their voices faded away. Uh but they don't fade away entirely, and then then we have this, you know, immensely uh, poignant. Uh, oh gosh! Uh, exchange uh, in which um, it's so haunting. In which the child um, anxiously uh, asks, you know, will we see him when we return? Where yeah. are they going? We don't know. Yeah. Uh, are they she's already confident of returning wherever it is that they're going uh, oh, i have some little drama in my mind you know they're doing a kind of perfectly ordinary thing they're going to market or something like that they're they're coming back to their building or something like that uh, but yes you're right i mean i'm i'm kind of um i don't have <laughs> i can't i can't defend that position it's just it's just the sense i have yeah. Well, there everybody's moving in a kind of symbolic landscape, but we don't right. know we don't know very well how to um interpret their movements. Right. Um but uh we do know that the child is anxious about leaving him uh and and not saying goodbye properly. Uh the grandmother is it significant that there's this sort of gap in generational gap, in other words, between, you know, like I think of Bishop and Sistina or something, you know, with mm, the, mm, the granddaughter mm, and the grandmother mm, and the kind of mm, missing generation in between. Mm, mm, is, is there some 
you know, might at some level, what's sort of motivating the anxiety here on the part of the child be a, a kind of, um, you know, projection, I'm now using more sort of psychoanalytic language mm-hmm. here, but a kind of projection of um, the parental role onto the sort of, onto the figure on the stairs, you know, the kind of mm-hmm. a missing father figure or something mm-hmm. like that. Yeah. Uh, well, he's in the middle of a journey and he's in the generational mm-hmm. middle, I suppose, right. yeah. uh, of these three figures. Um, I think what's particularly touching to me about this, about the little girl's concern here is that, uh, the anxiety seems to be a a kind of anxiety about his welfare and not for herself and a kind of desire to care for him or to see that he is Mm -hmm. cared for, uh, which takes the form as it turns out, uh, uh, of her chanting for him uh, the Hebrew prayer for the dead, the Kaddish. Uh, Sir, she whispered, my grandmother tells me you are not dead, though you look dead to me. <laughs> <laughs> but I thought perhaps this would soothe you in your terrors, and somehow she knows that he has terrors. Yeah. I mean, the the kind of wisdom that the child possesses is uncanny too. And I will not be here to sing it at the right time. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and then, and then there's a, I mean, how, I mean, how are we to understand this? The, the, the little girl in effect performs a funeral rite. Uh-huh. Uh that is not appropriate at the moment. Right. But we all know will be at a later moment to be deferred. P- part of it, what's un- uncanny about that is that at that moment he won't there I mean yes there won't be any consciousness at all, right? It's you know. Presumably, right. Right. Uh But it's as though the it's as though the poem the poem doesn't sort of concede that or like in, in this universe, it doesn't work that way. It's, 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 it's like when he's dead, he will be more or less as he is now, you know, and he will be, well, right. And he will be hearing it. Cause when you hear this again, right? yeah, that's right. But she's sort of perhaps, planting a future memory for him. Yeah. Perhaps the words will be less intimidating. If you remember how you first heard them in the voice of a little girl. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, I mean, I have to laugh because it's, it, it's just, uh, it's very hard to, to put into other words. What uh-huh. Louise has managed to say here. Uh, well, I think. Yeah. Go, go on ahead. and try. <laughs> I, have a, I have a question, but go on yeah, and try. Go, go ahead. Okay, I'll ask. Yeah, good. So if if we're just to back up for the moment and sort of ramp up again to the ending there, you know, there's, I think you so helpfully pointed out the ways in which as the man, the speaker of the poem describes the vigorous woman who is the grandmother that he's describing a version of Louise herself. Mm. 
that that's a sort of recognizable character to you and 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 I'm sure to others who knew her well. Mm. Um, she says to her granddaughter, has said to her granddaughter, and and I suppose we should, you know, credit this with sort of truth or sincerity or whatever. I was once like this man, but then I got up and went mm. on. You know, we mm. we should have courage. In other words, um. I wonder um, you know, I wonder, like let's, for the sake of argument, sort of posit that the three points of view, human points of view represented in this poem, the three characters who get to speak in this poem, are that what we're getting is a kind of dramatized version of sort of three attitudes towards life that that might all be contained in a in a self or in louise or in anyone in you mm-hmm. and me um and that you know there is a part of us that wants to lie down on the stairs and not get up <laughs> there's a part of us that you know, and and actually that one, that one too. He he addresses himself. You you must get up, my lad. And he sort of addresses himself as a child, as though he were mm-hmm. like an adult speaking yeah. to a child, right? As if he were still still had the vigor of youth, right? So you know, what's the question that I'm that I'm sort of kind of edging around here? That is, is there um, is there some kind of um, you know, insofar as this feels like a parable, like a Kafka-esque mm. parable, is 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 the is the idea that you know what the poem is thinking about are the kinds of stories we might tell ourselves or consolations we might provide to ourselves. Um, that that allow us to get up and go on or to or to die mm-hmm. when mm-hmm. when it's time to die mm-hmm. um i mean i'm also thinking about you know what what you've told me and i forgive me i can't remember if and and perhaps written i, I can't remember if you've said it here in our conversation but you know when louise got the very terrible news of her own diagnosis I was sort of moved by your description of her own attitude about it in conversation, you know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. with you. And I wonder, and so I'm naturally, I'm thinking about that as we're having this conversation, which mm-hmm. seems to be about the sort of how one comes to terms with one's own foreshortened journey. I mean, all of our journeys are foreshortened. Uh, foreshortened. Even, <laughs> yeah, even, even, you know, her, her mother who lived to 101, let's say, right. you know, anyway. So, what, is there something in there for you, Lanny? That is oh, there's a lot of there. I, I I think you're 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 um, you know getting at at the complexity of the poem and its resonance. Uh, one thing I, I guess I wanted to say is um, just as the grandmother identifies with the man on the stairs, I think Louise. Uh, understood despair and 
understood desire not to go on. <laughs> not notwithstanding her own sort of vigorous decision exactly. to go on. Yeah, right. Yeah. Well, right. Well, right. Yeah. I mean, it, it, I mean, uh, I've, in some of my writing about Louise, I, I've stressed, you know, what a driven person she was, uh, you know, and how, uh, how motivated she was to excel, to climb the stairs, to win prizes, to write these books, uh, yeah. etc. Uh, that's a big part of Louise. Uh, but uh, there was also, crucially, uh, a person who understood despair, as I'm saying, and, and understood breakdown and malfunction yeah. uh, and the desire to sleep. And, and I... Uh, I, I see this poem as, as in some way, and, and, and connects it. This poem connects that experience, the experience to withdraw, to right. hide, uh, to a kind of, let's say, a fear of death that is like dying. That's a, mm. that's a pretty good simulacrum. We can't tell whether you're asleep or actually dead. We might call it depression or something. They might right? call yeah. it depression. As simple as that. As profound as that. Uh, and this poem gives full space to that experience and yet frames it with, um, with a kind of care and consolation yeah. Yeah. Uh, that is very powerful. I think there's a lot to be said about Louisa's Jewishness. Uh, I don't exactly know how to take up the subject properly. The fact that uh, the Hebrew prayer for the dead is what is being said here seems right. significant and important. And maybe Kafka as a model is important. Well, I was going to say, well. maybe it's a part of the connection there too. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, that Jewishness is obviously rooted in, or or rather, is a kind of ground for a sensibility that we hear. Maybe a ground for a voice and mm -hmm. a sense of humor mm -hmm. uh, that is part of what is getting people to chuckle uh, nervously, uh -huh. Uh, uh -huh. Uh -huh. <laughs> as, uh -huh. as you notice. In, yeah. in the uh, public reading that you had recorded, yeah, um, yeah. So, so uh, that's another context that the poem opens onto that's enormous, right? And um, I'm sure I I am no, no more than you claim to be the the right person to give the kind of authoritative account of what Jewishness might be doing here, but in terms of sort of consolations for death or ways of thinking about death, it's it's not the same, we might say, just as a kind of obvious thing to say, but that might lead to other thoughts too, as the kind of Catholic view that Dante, mm. <laughs> for mm -hmm. instance, um, 
might imagine, right? There's a, mm-hmm. a, a kind of entirely different sort of orientation to um, mm-hmm. notions of afterlife. I also find myself thinking at the end of this poem of another of Louise's very famous lines, and I'm doing a risky thing here, which is to say mm-hmm. lines are famous, and then I'm going to try to quote them from memory, but the <laughs> which I'm bound to fail, but you know, isn't it, isn't it in the poem Nostos? We look at the, chi- at the world once in childhood, the rest is memory. This is memory. Yeah. There's, um, you know, whatever one thinks about how sort of, um, ironic or sincere or whatever, you know, what kind of reading, what, what sort of attitude we should take towards a pronouncement like that. Um, there's a way in this poem where it's as though the sort of parts of the self have been kind of disambiguated Mm. um, and Mm. then, but then kind of dramatized all within a scene so that it's, I mean, it's interesting to me that the child is the one providing the consolation Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. here. Um, And the notion of a kind of um, cleaving a part of a message from the, from the voice that carries it. You know, perhaps mm. this, perhaps this message, which might be terrifying to hear, will have been domesticated for you in some way, or mm-hmm. sweetened for you in some way. Mm-hmm. If you hear it, if you remember for, that the first time you heard it, it was in the voice yeah. of a little girl. Yeah, yeah. Or, or maybe a little girl listening to the voice. Huh. Uh, uh, I mean, that is to say. You don't have to tease out too much of the poem to to understand uh, the Kaddish as being perhaps a, a you know something Louise would have heard as a child, uh, right. and right. that would you know relate to early experience um, and maybe you know first experiences of death, um, and might recently have heard for her mother. Indeed. When Indeed. she wrote this. Indeed. And and uh and that she, Louise, uh would have in some ways, uh though uh seventy or well, sixty-nine or sixty-eight at the time of her mother's death, uh would uh nevertheless also have been a little girl. Sure. I suppose when a parent dies, you you might well feel like a child. Um, however old you happen to be at the time. I, I, I liked what you were saying earlier about the uh, non-Christianness yeah, <laughs> of, the, right. of the poem uh, in the, 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 the kind of lack of any uh, gesture towards resurrection, which is a theme of the wild iris, needless to say, right. uh, you know, which Louise has visited before. It's, it's not as if it isn't in her repertoire. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, one, one last thing to say about space, uh, spacing right. in the, in the poem, uh, and maybe it's a good note to end on, um, that comment about the lack of afterlife projected in this poem um, right. seems to me uh, to correct something I just was saying earlier. I, I was saying that, you know, there's an important space between the first and the second paragraph and an important space between the second and the final 
paragraph, the, right. the little third paragraph that is a kind of envoy. Well, I neglected the space after that. <laughs> uh, the, uh, mm-hmm. the rest of that white page, um, that's resonant too. Uh, and um, earlier I was talking about the kind of mysterious, as it were, disappearance of the speaker um, as he turns the poem over to the grandmother and the little girl and ultimately just to the little girl. Um, uh, I think that that disappearance is both audibly and visibly uh, felt through the period after little girl and the white space that, that, that follows yeah. it. Yeah. The rest is silence. Yeah. Um, Lanny, um, this, this has been a really, um, beautiful conversation and I've learned so much and I've, I've been, um, really grateful to get to spend the time, um, uh, through your person, um, with, um, Louise's work and with her and with this poem, um, we've heard her read it once out loud. And I know we've, we've been talking for a while, but I've come to learn also that when I don't end an episode by asking my guests to read the poem again out loud, I, I hear from listeners who say that they want that, that they, enjoy, that they like to hear the poem a, a second time, having heard the conversation. So I wonder if you could indulge us with as a way to end uh, with a reading of the poem in your own voice. A foreshortened journey. I found the stairs somewhat more difficult than I had expected. And so I sat down, so to speak, in the middle of the journey. Because there was a large window opposite the railing, I was able to entertain myself with the little dramas and comedies of the street outside though no one I knew passed by, no one, certainly, who could have assisted me. Nor were the stairs themselves in use, as far as I could see. You must get up, my lad, I told myself. Since this seemed suddenly impossible, I did the next best thing. I prepared to sleep, my head and arms on the stair above, my body crouched below. Sometime after this, a little girl appeared at the top of the staircase, holding the hand of an elderly woman. Grandmother, cried the little girl, there's a dead man on the staircase. We must let him sleep, said the grandmother. We must walk quietly by. He is at that point in life at which neither returning to the beginning nor advancing to the end seems bearable. Therefore, he has decided to stop here in the midst of things, though this makes him an obstacle to others, such as ourselves. But we must not give up hope. In my own life, she continued, there was such a time, though that was long ago. And here, she let her granddaughter walk in front of her so they could pass me without disturbing me. I would have liked to hear the whole of her story, since she seemed, as she passed by, a vigorous woman, ready to take pleasure in life, and at the same time forthright, without illusions. But soon their voices faded into whispers 
or they were far away. Will we see him when we return? The child murmured. He will be long gone by then, said her grandmother. He will have finished climbing up or down, as the case may be. Then I will say goodbye now, said the little girl. And she knelt below me, chanting a prayer I recognized as the Hebrew prayer for the dead. Sir, she whispered, my grandmother tells me you are not dead. But I thought perhaps this would soothe you in your terrors. And I will not be here to sing it at the right time. When you hear this again, she said, perhaps the words will be less intimidating if you remember how you first heard them in the voice of a little girl. Well, uh, Lenny Hammer, thank you again uh, for the gift of this conversation. And um, thank you for um, sharing your time with us. Um, thank you, listeners, for um, sitting with us for the last hour and a half. And um, I, I wish you well more soon.